and we are live from the empire of lies, a bastion of truth in a time of global revolution. I am independent journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is a backstory. I wish I'd been smoother on the time of global revolution, but I got to work on that one. How you doing today, Rod? I'm doing good, Lee. How about yourself? Good. Welcome to Friday. We made it. Great week. Did you learn a lot of history so far this week? Uh, of course. Yeah, no, definitely. I always, always learn stuff uh, here on uh, Sputnik Radio. Yeah, I thought we had very good shows you put together for us, Rod. And today is no exception. Today, we have from Saudi Arabia, Jean Kiriakou in the first hour. And he'll be telling us about what Joe Biden's doing over there, which is apparently not much. Apparently, he's not even going to ask the Saudis to increase oil production, they were saying. And he had a meeting about the Palestinians. We'll talk about all this later. But Biden, not particularly having an impressive trip in the Middle East, even by his standards, would you say, Rod? Yeah, I think that jet lags really uh, slowed him down even more than the, you know, his cognitive abilities at already. But we'll be talking to John Kiriakou about that this hour. Second hour, great guest to close the week out, Caleb Mopin, RT correspondent, formerly with Al Jazeera. And I've learned a lot from Caleb. Caleb really knows history, and I expect to learn a lot more from him today as we talk to him about uh, George Sorrell, who's an important person in the history of fascism and socialism. And he's a very interesting writer that Caleb knows about. And we'll talk about more recent history with Caleb. And we'll be taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. Hey, Lee, you, you meant RT, right? Yeah, what did I say? Al Jazeera. I said Al Jazeera, but I meant Al Jazeera, too. He's an RT correspondent who used to be with Al Jazeera. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. So Yeah, Kettle worked for Al Jazeera for a number of years. Yeah, I, I didn't know that until recently either. But I've been watching a lot of videos that Caleb does on YouTube. And I'll say this later in the show. He's got a very interesting YouTube channel. And anyone looking for something to watch this weekend, Caleb's channel on YouTube, you could do worse than that. Although I'm excited because one of my favorite comedies what We Do in the Shadows has started its fourth season, and it's on Hulu now. Have you ever seen that show, What We Do in the Shadows, Rod? No, that's no, the first time I've ever heard of it. It's about four vampires living in Staten Island in contemporary United States. And it's shot in a doc- mock documentary style, and it's very, very funny. It was based on a New Zealand film 
that the guys from Flight of the Concords did. And they adapted, the guys who did that film adapted it for TV and changed the location and brought in all new characters. But it's the same basic idea, a documentary that follows vampires around. And is is saying it's a documentary series about vampires doesn't sound like a laugh riot, but it's very funny. And apparently popular too. Four seasons, so they're doing okay. But uh, one of my favorite contemporary comedies. Also, I saw. Also, I saw last night. I'm a big sketch comedy fan, and I saw last night. The kids in the hall have done a six season on. Amazon Prime, and the kids in the hall are no longer kids. Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald, Bruce McCulloch, etc. The kids in the hall, the actors in that show, are all in their 60s now. So it's a sketch comedy show where the stars are all in their 60s. And that's interesting because they, they look it. They look like men in their 60s. And they had one piece on the show. They're taking advantage of that somehow. Uh, they did its new season. And one thing is about male strippers at a female strip strip joint. And the, the male strippers are all over 50 or 60. And it's it's funny. And the other thing it did, and this is why I bring it up, the kids in the hall, they did something. Apparently, they wanted to break ground. They did a sketch where two of the male, because they're all dudes, where two of the male stars were completely naked at one point. They were trying to evade the police, and they took off their clothes. And so you had two 60-year-old men 60-ish, standing naked on the screen, and just the camera didn't flinch. And Rod, now maybe I'm weird, but does does anyone need to see that? Uh, no, I don't think so. Right. So it was kind of, you know, I could say ballsy, but it was sort of brave of them. It was brave of them. It was very brave of them as actors to put it all out there. And it was weird. And I'm just pointing out that they did break ground because female nudity, you know, is fairly normal, not in comedy shows, but on TV, we're used to female nudity, but we don't get that kind of male nudity. And they weren't aroused in any way, thank God. They were just unnatural. But I thought it was very interesting of actors, two of them, I guess they kind of dared each other in the writer's room. Okay, I'll do it if you will. Now, also, word came in last night 
I was actually on the phone with Jason Goodman, you know, our Tuesday co-host. And Jason Goodman let out a gasp while I was on him, on the phone with him. Because it had come out of the wire. You can probably guess, Rod, what shocked Jason Goodman. Ivana Trump's death. Ivana Trump founded Obama Sears, said the headline. And Jason was like, oh, Ivana. Now, mainly, I don't think, don't take me wrong, but I don't think it, Jason really cared. Does it make sense, Rod? Like, I might have said. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. But, now, obviously, the death of anyone is a tragedy. And she had loved ones. But how much can you build up caring about Ivana Trump's death? Be, be honest. Be honest, Rod. Be as bold as the two naked people on Kids in the Hall. Be bold. How much do you care about Ivana Trump dying? Uh, you know, you know, obviously, you know, it's sad when someone dies, but not much. Lee. Uh, the thing that I was uh, preparing for was uh, for the... Uh, the establishment media to start uh, making jokes of it, and of course, uh, it came. It came to prosper, and the people were making fun of, uh, you know, Donald Trump's first wife dying. Now, now I wouldn't make fun of it because I don't care that much. But what were they saying? Uh, pretty much that this is what she gets for being uh, formerly with uh, in a relationship with Donald Trump and having his children, this, that, and the third. Just real nasty stuff that I don't think, you know, she didn't deserve. I don't, you know, I mean, what did she say the last six years that uh, would have deserved anything like that? She was 71 or something. I think, I think that's right, 71. And first off, that's what she gets, dying at 71, that's the sort of normal age. And by the way, everyone dies, everyone. So you people making the jokes are gonna get it too. And it's what you deserve for making fun of someone else's death. I wouldn't make fun of it, but I, I just don't care that much. And uh, But making fun of, uh, and by the way, who do they think, who's the audience for Ivana Trump jokes after she's dead? Who's the audience for that? How much do you have to hate Trump to hate someone who divorced him? Because apparently she wasn't a big Donald Trump fan since she divorced him. Right, yeah. I mean, you're not. It's you're going after the one person who we're pretty sure has some reason that are legitimate not to like Donald Trump. Because I can't imagine that divorce. I can't imagine when you see how Donald Trump acts like about Elon Musk. Can you imagine that Donald Trump handled a divorce without saying a couple of nasty things himself. Well, he doesn't we, handle had, criticism well already. Right, right, Rod? 
Yeah, we've had uh, Jared and Elizabeth Beck on before, and they've uh, been in litigation with him before. Uh, so they, you know, they see how he is uh, behind the scenes, not on camera, and uh, they've let us know know about it. And he's a uh, he's a kind of uh, direct person. He lets you know what he feels. And I, by the way, I know some people who know Donald Trump, and I will say, I'm not going to say who or what. Sorry. But I know some people who know Trump, and when they have talked to me about Trump, they say bad stuff about him privately that they wouldn't say about him publicly. And what that tells me is they have stuff that they want to say to him, but they're afraid to. Does it make sense, Rod? Yeah, yeah, Lee, it definitely makes sense. Can I can I add to that real quick? Um, there's this show on Amazon Prime called The The Boys. It's uh, based on this comic. In this last season, third season, you know, I watch the show. It's you know just uh, for entertainment. They've pretty much inverted reality. They've taken the whole Antifa, the uh, Trump, the MAGA, and uh, the main character's Homelander. He's pretty much like a uh, Superman type character, but he's a bad guy. And they pretty much transformed that whole our reality into the show and made that this Homelander guy kind of like a Trump character uh, where, you know, like you like you said, people are afraid to tell him the truth because, he'll you know, in the in the in the show, he'll kill you. But, you know, in, in obviously in real life, Trump will just say bad things about you and probably fire you. Yeah. Now, now, last night, Tucker did a piece. We'll play a clip from it in a second here. Uh, on the Ray Epps thing, and I commented real briefly on the Ray Epps thing, but I said I'd seen a New York Times story, and the New York Times story from the headline, you can tell the angle of the story. Does it make sense? And the angle of the story is poor Ray Epps. People have said mean stuff about him and created a conspiracy theory about him and January 6th. Poor guy. But I had seen this guy, Ray Epps, clearly on video telling people we need to get inside the Capitol, urging people, you need to get inside the Capitol. And Rod, you've seen that footage, right? Yeah, he tells people that's where all our problems are, inside the Capitol. And it's a thousand percent clear. This guy is not saying you need you need to go to the Capitol and then someone's implying he doesn't say go to the Capitol. He said we need to get inside and he points. He points, he gesticulates to indicate what inside is. Does that make sense? But but am I am I being accurate there, Rod? No, no, you're being you're being 100 percent accurately. Uh, he was very emphatic of letting these people know he's real loud. Uh, he's real boisterous. So, yeah. And so I'm going to play the Tucker clip first as a good introduction. He covers a lot of this stuff. And let's hit it. The New York Times just ran a piece explaining that when you ask questions about Ray Epps, you are committing a moral crime, maybe even helping Putin. The piece was entitled, It's Just Been Hell, Life as the Victim of a January 6th Conspiracy Theory. Oh, so Ray Epps, the guy telling people to breach the Capitol, is now, in the words of the New York Times, a victim. 
a victim of your unrestrained curiosity. Now, this piece was written by a reporter who has spent years shilling openly for the intelligence agency. It may give you some sense of where this storyline comes from. Like the agencies themselves, the New York Times piece was highly deceptive. For example, the New York Times says that Epps was, quote, taped urging people to go to the Capitol. Oh, but that's not what the tape shows. Ray Epps was doing something very different. Ray Epps was urging people to go into the Capitol, not to the Capitol. And there's a big difference legally. One is a crime, according to the DOJ, and the other is not a crime. And that's not all Ray Epps did. Epps also told people what they should do once they got inside the Capitol, and that's on video, too. This is just minutes before the first breach of the building that day. Watch. One more thing. Yeah, so can we go up there? No? When we go in. Are we going to get arrested when we go up there? Yeah. You don't need to get shot. When we go in, leave this here. What does that mean? Well, for some reason, the New York Times reporter didn't ask Ray Epps what he meant by that. Now, the reporter spent a day talking to Epps. It was a day-long conversation, according to the story. But that question never came up. No meaningful question came up. It's all very strange. The New York Times is mounting a propaganda campaign on behalf of a self-described Trump voter insurrectionist. Now, this is the same paper that cheered Ashley Babbitt's death but this same paper is weeping for Ray Epps because people have been mean to him online? Hmm. It's almost like they're trying to cover something up. Now, buried near the end of the New York Times piece, there's a hint. We find this line, quote, Mr. Epps also said he regretted sending a text to his nephew well after the violence had erupted, in which he discussed how he helped orchestrate the movements of people who were leaving Mr. Trump's speech near the White House by pointing them in the direction of the Capitol. Really? What was in that text? We'd never heard of that before, and it kind of makes you think the entire New York Times piece was written to drop that little bomblet at the end in the least damaging way. Now, I looked at the New York Times piece, and I went over it and over it. I wanted to make sure everything Tucker was saying that the New York Times said or didn't say was accurate. Sure enough, the piece misstates what Rayups did. They said he urged people to go to the Capitol. He did not urge them to go to the Capitol. He urged them to go inside. And that was reported by the New York Times in the documentary. They played that clip before, but it was not in the story. That story, on its own, repeatedly calls it a conspiracy theory that Ray Epps was a Fed. But it's accurate to say the people at the Capitol on January 5th, I believe, remember all the people chanting Fed at him, Rod? Right. He was uh, outside and urging people to get inside. Other people were urging, were, were chanting Fed, right? Yeah, that's correct. So... The conspiracy theory is apparently that people thought at the Capitol that someone urging people to go inside was the Fed. In other words, they didn't know what was going to happen when they chanted that. That is not making an excuse because they tried to imply in the story that, you know, basically after people had been arrested, that they then made up 
the conspiracy theory that this guy was a Fed. No. It's accurate to say people there at the Capitol accused him of being a Fed. Is that, would you say that's 100% accurate? The people at the Capitol accused Ramps of being a Fed. Yeah, 100%. Lee, uh, I think in, in that clip, I think Baked Alaska was there standing with him, and he, he was one of the one loudest ones starting that chant that this guy's a Fed. So the central question that should be covered in the story is, is Rayaps a Fed? Is he a federal informant? Now, we played the clip before a couple times at various points during the show. When Ted Cruz asked the head of the FBI whether any FBI agents were involved in January 6th, you remember that clip? Yeah, and the woman says she can't answer that question. And she not only said it once, as Ted Cruz did the lawyer thing of rephrasing the question of a bunch of ways, any one of which should have been easy for her to answer if the answer is no. For instance, watch this. I'm going to do it with Rod. Rod, did you plan a violent break-in of the Capitol on January 6th. You, Rod, the producer, Rod from Philly, did you? No, I did not. That was easy. Look at that. I asked him a question. He said, no, I did not. Okay, watch. I'll do it again. Rod, Rod from Philly, are you, in fact, a federal agent? No, I'm not. Are you with the FBI? No, I'm not. Look how easy this is. I ask him questions. He answers them in a clear, concise way. By the way, I'm glad you answered the way you did. But okay. But my point is, Ted Cruz asked the head of the FBI, and she could not answer. She said, I cannot divulge that, which is her way of saying, what, Rod? It's essentially her way of saying, since she didn't say no, I took it as a yes. Am I conspiratorial for having that theory? No. No, 100%. Lee. I, I go along with that as well. And uh, it was supposed to be Chris Ray in that uh, testimony, but he sent her out there to, to go for the slaughter, you know, put the lamb to the slaughter for Ted Cruz to pick apart. Yeah, I, I, I was unsure what to call her because— she was representing the head of the FBI, but so I, I, I fudged a little bit. But what I just asked Rod, are you a Fed? That question was apparently not posed to Ray Epps by the New York Times reporter. At no point did the reporter indicate the truth of whether Ray Epps was with the FBI informing, they could, he could have asked him, Ray Epps may not have been a Fed. He may have just been a narc, right? He may have been an informant. But the reporter didn't ask or explain it to the audience. He didn't give any answer or response to that central question. And I'd say what this story shows Unfortunately, 
at the New York Times, journalistic integrity is deader than Ivana Trump. There is no way the New York Times can claim to be a journalistic operation at this point. I, I, that's harsh, but this piece is pure propaganda that you can do in two moves. You look at what the story says, then you look at what Ray Epps says on video. Now, the purpose of the propaganda is to mislead people who read the story and think that there's nothing to the fact that Ray, the reason Ray Epps is being questioned is something nefarious. But the reason is the same reason that people brought up at the Capitol and were yelling fed at Ray Epps. He was acting suspiciously. So this convinces me that there is something. Thanks, New York Times. You've convinced me 100% that there's something very, very sketchy going on about this and that they're covering up something and that they're trying to hide Ray Epps' involvement. They mentioned that this has been brought up, the Ray Epps thing, by Ted Cruz, Thomas Massey, and today I saw Marjorie Taylor Greene bring it up. And I saw a few people, Dinesh D'Souza, bring it up. But, Rod, based on this New York Times reporting, in air quotes, pretend I can't, the way my speech is, I have trouble sounding sarcastic. But reporting, quote, quote, Rod, do you have any doubt that there's a cover-up and that the New York Times was central to that cover-up in the Rav story? Any doubt whatsoever? No, I have no doubt, Lee. Uh, no, I have doubt. And, uh, you know, it took them so long to interview Ray Epps and they uh, put a picture of him and his wife uh, to to get some type of emotional reaction from their readers. Like he's this victim when like clearly, like you said, he's on multiple videos on uh, multiple days, the day before and the day of January 6th, uh, instructing people what to do. So, you know, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's just to warp people's minds, uh, whatever readers are still reading The New York Times. And I got asked a question, and we'll go to John very soon. But the New York Times, they really try to sell you so you buy a subscription. Have you noticed that, Rod? There's a lot of ads and incentives to sign up to get behind the paywall. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you know, I get the alerts on my phone from the New York Times, but uh, when I try to read the articles, a lot of them, you got to, you know, get behind the paywall to read them. And they, they try to sell you. They, they have an ad at the paywall, right? Correct. And one of the things they do is they throw in bonuses, like an extra, you know, the New York Times crossword puzzle is very popular. So they'll throw in a book of New York Times crosswords or whatever. So here's my question. Does an extra dose of stupidity come with the New York Times subscription? How are New York Times readers, your, your supposedly educated, erudite, urban dwellers, subscribing to New York Times? How stupid are you people? This is the most obvious cover-up ever. And I don't think you feel any sympathy for Ray Epps. 
because they do describe him as a Trump supporter. Therefore, the average New York Times subscriber hates him off the bat of that. So they're not going to say they have as much sympathy as people are showing Corvana Trump. No sympathy for him. So, but do you have to be stupid and non-empathetic? But let's take a short break and go to Saudi Arabia with our correspondent, the great John Kiriakou, coming up next on The Backstory. Back on the backstory and on the radio, 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now, we're very pleased and honored to have John Kiriakou, the co-host of Political Misfits here in Radio Sputnik, who is joining us from Saudi Arabia. And John, where particularly in Saudi Arabia are you? I am in downtown Jeddah. Jeddah is the okay. uh, it's sort of the, the summer capital of Saudi Arabia. When the weather gets really hot, uh, the entire royal family moves from Riyadh to Jeddah. Yes, and Huma Abedin's mother teaches at a women's college there in Jeddah. Yes, yes, that's right. I spoke, I've spoken to her. I forget what the name, name of it is. It's someone's name on the college, but. I understand the weather. It's in the 90s. I understand. What time is it in Saudi Arabia? Let's see. It is 11.32 p.m. So I looked at the weather in Jeddah, and it says it's 93 at nearly midnight. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you. I left left in the mid-afternoon just to grab a sandwich across the street, and it was 109 degrees. Ridiculous. And it's... It's crazy humid because it's right on the Red Sea. Now, let me also ask you, Europe's having a heat wave right now. Are any of your family or friends affected by the wildfires that are going on in Greece? Oh, thanks for asking. No, thank goodness. Those fires last year, if you recall, um, when you and I were doing the show, it was August. I was in Greece and not only were my my friends and relatives affected, but I spoke to you one night where where we were close enough to the fire at a restaurant, no less, that I remember that yes. the sky was orange, you know, with flames. And then the next day, um, my hotel balcony was just covered in ash. That's how bad it was. But the fires that are going on right now, well, they're in different places, but the the area nearest uh, Athens is west of Athens. So my relatives are about a half an hour away. Now, don't ask me to explain it, but you know what we had here in South Dakota recently, about a week ago? The sky turned huh. green. What the heck was that? I, my girlfriend was out. She came back and she said, the sky's green. And, you know, she's a girl, so I thought she was being a little overdramatic. But later I yeah. saw a picture and there have been thunderstorms and the sky was bright green. I have uh, no explanation for it, John, but it's weird, don't you think? Oh, that's crazy. I wonder if it was like some kind of tornado-like situation. Because the sky does weird conspiracy- things when a tornado is coming. 
And as a conspiracy theory, I blame the Irish. And we'll talk <laughs> about the Irish in a second with Joe Biden. But that's good, John, that no one was, because uh, I do remember when, when you were there last year, the fires affecting you. When I saw those new wildfires, I want to make sure that no one you know, knew and cared about was affected. So well, thank you. Uh, so one other trivial question. When I talked to Wyatt Reed yesterday, he was in occupied Palestine and he had never been to that region before. And he said oh. he, he had falafel and I asked him how it was. He said it was the best falafel he had ever had. And he said the hummus yeah. and I don't want to sort of fight because you're Greek, but he said the olives were the best olives he'd ever had. Wow. So I, I'll disagree so with him how, over the olives. But uh, I, 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 I had breakfast I knew at the hotel today. Yeah, I had breakfast at the hotel today. And, um, you know, in the, in the Middle East, breakfast is like dinner. I mean, you could, you could serve it for dinner and you wouldn't know the difference. Um, so they had the full spread of, of hummus and tabula and tzatziki. And, well, they, they don't call it tzatziki. They call it chachik. Uh, and I had the hummus and I, you know, it's been, it's been 10 years or so since I, I was last in the Middle East and I had forgotten what like golf, golf hummus tastes like. It's much more tahini heavy than the hummus we get in the U S and it was absolutely delicious. I mean, I could have just stayed at the table from breakfast and worked from the table, like through lunch and just eaten a second breakfast, you know? That's how good it was. Yes, I, I agreed. And I pointed out to Wyatt, but I'm, I was, I asked him how the hummus was, and I knew that he was going to say it was incredible. Because when I was in the Middle East, when I was in Lebanon in 2013, it was very good. Now, what Lebanon's got going for it, and you know this because you've been over there, Lebanon, because the, the French were colonizers, of right. that area. And you know where I'm going with this, don't you, John? Oh, yeah, There's I sure do. French cuisine is in Lebanese cuisine. So when I yes. was in Lebanon, I was able to get great French bread, for instance. Have you experienced oh, that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that at breakfast there this morning, you could choose between 15 different kinds of bread. And it's because of that French influence. You know, the French influenced the Lebanese and the Lebanese influenced the rest of the Middle East. So if you want really good Arab food, it's always Lebanese food. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you're over there because I, I, I get it. You know me. I like I, I'm interested in discussing food and weather with whenever a person's in a foreign country, because oh, yeah. I think it makes it understandable. Everyone can understand they they get hungry and they get hot or cold. Yep. So. Yep. And this is a more cogent conversation than Joe Biden seems to be having. Now, I want to talk to you about what Joe Biden did this morning. He apparently met with Mahmoud Abbas from the Palestinian Authority. And he said, and the quote was, the ground's not right for peace talks with Israel. Yeah, yeah. And Abbas wanted peace talks, but 
What is Biden talking about? The ground's not right for peace talks. Yeah, you know, Lee, of, of all the outrageous things that Joe Biden has said, um, this was one of the most outrageous from a policy perspective. If you support a two a two state solution, then you support a two state solution. Don't support or you can't support a two state solution someday, but not today. Today, there's no solution is essentially what he was saying. So if you're not just a leader, but if you're the leader of the most powerful and most important country in the world and you support a two state solution and one of the other two sides supports a two state solution, then by God, you push the other side to go to the negotiating table and work something out. And he just conceded whatever authority the United States might have by saying, you know, thinking he's throwing the Palestinians a bone by saying, sure, sure, we support an independent Palestine, just not today or tomorrow or next year, but someday. Well, by support, he means something different than you mean. Support to him means he has a thought in his head and it's like a distant wish as opposed to support being an action verb. That is exactly right. Yes. You know, and it was funny to me because he made such a big deal out of out of the saying that he was coming to the Middle East to try to restore American authority. Right. Which he said had been lost under Donald Trump. Um, But but he came down on the side of the Israelis, just like Donald Trump did. He um, not just endorsed the Abraham Accords, but he endorsed the expansion of the Abraham Accords to include other uh, countries which is fine and good if that's what your policy is. But don't say that your policy is exactly the opposite of the last guy's and then instead just continue to implement the last guy's policies. And then, Lee, I think this trip to Saudi Arabia was extremely risky for him. There are very few scenarios in which he comes out of this trip uh, a winner. Now, he's, he's said over the last several weeks that he had three goals. Uh, one was to um, ask the Saudis to raise the level of oil production to help bring oil prices down. Okay, they've already said they're not doing it. They told President Macron three weeks ago that they can't do it, that they're already producing at maximum, as are the Emiratis. Number two, to uh, call the Saudis, or specifically Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, to task for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. We can talk about that in more detail in a minute because he waffled back and forth and back and forth over the last month and a half before finally coming down uh, in in the meeting today. Uh, And third was this, uh, he's looking for a commitment for this. What are you saying? Because what are you you saying about the meeting today? uh, On Khashoggi? Yeah, he met. They, they met today. He and, and Mohammed bin Salman. Okay, he yeah, said, I know it was later, and I wasn't getting good coverage. Did Khashoggi come up with MBS? Um, yes, uh, Biden gave a press conference that was covered by BBC and CNN International. I'm going to say an hour ago, and um, okay. he said that he raised Khashoggi with MBS. MBS swore that he did not order the killing. 
uh, Biden said, I didn't believe him and I told him so. And then Khashoggi said that the killing had been ordered by people around him, around MBS, and that he had identified them and punished them. Biden said that he didn't believe that either. And of course, nobody believes that. Everybody knows that it was MBS that did this. And in fact, just recently, the British media reported that um, that an intelligence officer leaked information indicating that in 2014, MBS privately discussed with his father the idea of murdering King Abdullah by poisoning his food so that Salman could become king more quickly. So th- this guy, now John, this guy, yeah, John. Also, before we go on, give it to me straight. Do you consider Khashoggi a journalist? Uh, yeah, I consider him a journalist. Okay, he was, he's more of a commentator, but yeah, he he meets the definition of a journalist. You see why I ask? Because Khashoggi is engaged in enough activities where, unlike Shireen from. Al Jazeera, it's possible you might, you know, you know stuff. It's possible you might say a lot of people don't consider Khashoggi a journalist, but yes, you do. And I accept right. that. That's fine. Do you yeah, think he was kinda, killed? He, do you think he was killed he, because he's a journalist? Why do you think Khashoggi was killed? No, no, I think he was killed because he had written critically of the royal family in the past. Which was funny to me because he was never terribly critical. He would he would criticize individual policies, but there are other writers out there who are far more critical than Khashoggi ever was. You know what? Today, Lee, uh, I I wrote a I, I wrote a sort of a breaking news uh, story on this issue for uh, Robert Shear at USC for the Shear Post, and I used eight different sources, and four of them were blocked online by the Saudi government. And I had to come up with something else. So there's an really? awful lot of, uh, oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're terrible at, at censorship here, just terrible. Now, will you get any, are you able to speak freely? I, I think so. I mean, frankly, when, when our boss, Mindia, uh, told me to come out here for the visit, I thought for sure that the Saudis would deny my visa because I've written pretty harshly about the Saudis over the years. I was surprised when I got the visa. And then when I I just blew through immigration when I got here yesterday, no problem. And I was surprised again. Well, let me ask you on the first point you brought up because you were making three, I think, three points. And I I hadn't heard the news on Khashoggi. Did Biden bring up the Saudis increasing their oil production because they were walking that back in the media this morning. Yeah, so he he did. But but here's the catch. Uh, the catch is first they said they couldn't. Then they said they'd try. Then they said they would make no public announcement while Biden is here that Biden will have to wait for the OPEC plus meeting that takes place next month. So he doesn't come out of Saudi Arabia with a win on oil production. The answer was, we'll see. And that was somewhat predictable. Everyone I know oh. who, who looked at what he was going to be asking the Saudis to increase their production, 
in order to essentially drive the price down and hurt Russia of, of oil, right. right? Right, But right. doing that would also drive the price down for the Saudis. Correct. Right? There's no way that's the net effect is driving the price down worldwide. No one I knew thought the Saudis would do that because there's no reason for them to do it. It's not in their best interests. Did you know anyone who thought he would get a win on that? No, nobody. Nobody. And the, the, the other thing, the third thing that I don't think he gets a win on uh, is this regional defense agreement. So just before Biden left Israel, the Saudis announced that Air Force One would fly directly from Israel to Jeddah. This is the first time in the history of the world that a plane has flown from Israel into Saudi Arabia ever. And then and that, as that was the a president big deal in the press, all the press in the U.S., all the news stories, forgive me, John, but uh, all the uh, news stories in the world, that was a big headline. They were talking about the historic first flight the president would be taking. But go uh, ahead, John. Okay. Okay, good. I'm kind of surprised. Um, and then they announced almost immediately afterwards that that El uh, Al, the Israeli carrier, would be allowed to land in Saudi Arabia and that Saudia Airlines would be allowed to land in Israel. So that's, I mean, symbolically, that's kind of a big deal. Um, but realistically, it doesn't do anything to support the Middle East peace process. It doesn't establish diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It doesn't establish even a framework for this regional defense uh, thing that Biden's pushing. Now, tomorrow, Biden is going to meet with the leaders of all six GCC countries. That's the Gulf Cooperation Council. So it's the king of Saudi Arabia, the emir of, uh, of Kuwait, the king of Bahrain, the emir of Qatar, the president of the United Arab Emirates, and the Sultan of Oman. And they also invited the president of Egypt and the prime minister of Jordan, which, which is also highly unusual. So Biden's going to meet with all eight of them, and they're, they're going to discuss this, this regional defense thing. Uh, the Qataris are going to offer some pushback, as will the Omanis, because they actually have quite good relations with Iran, and that's what this is. This would... This would commit the six GCC countries and Israel and Jordan and, and Egypt to, to a defense pact uh, like NATO against Iran. And I'm just not sure that these countries are ready to do something like that, not with the Israelis. Good point. Now, John, can you think of any reason whatsoever that would apply to Russia – that does not apply to Saudi Arabia to stop doing no. oil business with Russia. In other words, all the arguments that the U.S. and Europe are making why they can't do business about oil with Russia. For instance, war in Ukraine. Well, the Saudi equivalent is war in Yemen, right? Yes. Yes. And I, I, I and they say abuses. Putin's a di dictator. But Putin's right. certainly not a king. And they say human rights abuses. And whatever they point out, as far as I know, there are not public beheadings of Brendan Greiner 
or whatever in Moscow. Can you think of anything that applies to Saudi Arabia that would not, it applies to Russia, forgive me, that you couldn't find an equivalent for easily with Saudi Arabia? No, I'm glad you you brought this up, and I'm probably going to have the intelligence service knocking at my door in a minute. But in every one of those criteria, the Saudis are worse. Whatever you can say about Russia, the Russians launched a war, the Russians have a dictator, the Russians don't respect human rights, the Russians don't respect um, LGBTQ or women's rights or you know religious freedom or whatever. Whatever you can say, the Saudis are worse. There's no question about it. And historically, the Saudis have always been worse. Now, some people might call that whataboutism. And by the way, that was a term coined by the British during World War II. But I think whataboutism is a dumb argument. There's no logical fallacy of whataboutism. Whataboutism is desiring a consistent, coherent course of action from somebody that doesn't involve hypocrisy. And all I'm trying to figure out is what principles are involved here. What principles are involved? Does that make sense, John? Yeah, because if you're going to if you're going to have this policy that you want to muscle other countries into uh, into maintaining along with you, you have to be consistent. And, and we're grossly inconsistent. You know, why is why is our policy good for one country and then the other country will let him get away literally with murder? Now, let's go back to uh, Biden in Palestine. One thing was, he, I'm glad he brought Khashoggi with MBS, but he apparently was gutsier there than he was with the Palestinians because they did yeah. not. He did not really bring up Shireen. The, Shireen's family was sitting in the meeting, holding her picture up when he met with Mahmoud Abbas. Did you hear yes. that? Yeah, I sure did. And then BBC interviewed Shireen's brother afterwards as well. And it's very clear that she was killed by an Israeli bullet. They're saying it was accidental. It was an accidental bullet. They're saying no, but no, still, he did not bring that issue up. And then let's get the clip ready. Let's let's bring back in the green color of the air in Sioux Falls and say, here comes the Irish again. Here's a Biden reference to the Irish. Let's play a clip. I, uh, my background and the background of my family is Irish-American. And uh, we uh, have a, uh, a long history of uh, not fundamentally unlike the Palestinian people with uh, Great Britain and their attitude toward Irish Catholics over the years, for 400 years. Now, and, and, and John, again, you know, Stranahan, the name, so County Cork, that stabs yeah. in my heart the way if Biden had said, well, I'm a Greek origin and I'm a proud, you know, you would have been puking in your shoes. But what do you think of Joe Biden's statement comparing the Irish situation and the 
perhaps the troubles to Palestinians. John? Yeah, this was, you know, I, I hope that that was just a, a, an off-the-cuff, poor choice of, a, of an analogy. Um, if somebody took the time to research and write that as part of his speech, they should be fired because you can't control, I'm not control, you can't compare the, what the Irish went through with, with an apartheid regime that Israel is. You just can't. Irish were never stateless. Irish were never, had never had their homes bulldozed as a part of government policy, you know, and at least in Ireland, there was some semblance of justice if somebody was, was killed, you know, or, or maimed or whatever. Uh, Shireen Abu Akla, the evidence is quite clear. I, I read that, the Israeli report, and I read the American report. And it's clear that she was killed by an Israeli soldier who did it because he thought he could get away with it. He was probably goofing around, figured she's Palestinian, so who cares? Nobody's going to care. And he pulled the trigger. I think that's what happened. Well, if, if so, then it was right. Right? Yeah. Because apparently, no, no one apparently to... he was right. Yeah. Now, so, John, we, we only have a couple minutes left. And thanks a lot for coming on the show. Always good to oh, talk sure. to you. Uh, let me Same ask you part. a general question. And I've been talking about it all week with various people. It's clear to me something is in the offing around the world. What I'll call a worldwide revolution or the wheels coming off. And I'm pointing to of the people who attended G7, two of them, Johnson and Italy's Draghi, have resigned since the G7 about three weeks ago. Yeah. Also, yeah. the uprising in Holland and in Sri Lanka, the citizens' uprisings right. in those countries. Do you get the sense that something, that we're at a unique time and that the wheels are coming off the liberal world order? Do you get that sense, John? I actually do get that sense. Um, you know, who was it, Lee, that said, never, I think it was Martin Luther King, never underestimate a man's desire to be free. And you can only oppress a people for so long before they rise up. And I think people are tired of this, you know, traditional liberal uh, world order. It's time for a change in a lot of different places. And there seems to be a leadership problem in Europe because with Draghi out and Johnson, there's no one. And by the way, how's the leadership in Greece in terms of popularity? Because I've noticed, it oh, seems to me, there's no good. one in Greece except Orban who's popular. But what did you say? Uh, How are things in Greece? Yeah, in Greece, they're they're very good. The government is a, is a conservative government. It's right of center, pro American government led by a guy named Konstantin Mitsotakis, whose father and grandfather were also both prime minister. He's um, Harvard educated. In fact, the Washington Post made a crack when he visited the U.S. Uh, that when he met with Trump, his English was better than Trump's was. Um, but he's, yeah, he's immensely popular. And uh, the Greek papers have been full of rumors over the past week that he's going to call snap elections because 
if the elections were to be held today, he would completely crush the socialists and the communists. Okay, and John Kiriakou, thanks for the report. We're out of time. John, have a good trip. Enjoy Thank yourself. Thank you, sir. Stay safe. Good talking to you. John Kiriakou, special correspondent for Sputnik in Saudi Arabia. We'll be back with more on the backstory. Empire of Lies. We are back on the backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is the backstory. Fantastic report, and good to hear from John Karyaku, eh, Rod? Yeah, it's always good to hear from John. Despite the fact it's 93 degrees at midnight, that's a little hot. That, do you know what that reminds me of? is when I lived in Austin, Texas. And by the way, it's that kind of weather now. Austin, Texas, when we moved out, uh, I looked at, it was one of those clocks that's outside where it's a bank clock and it gives us time and temperature. And it showed like 95 degrees at midnight. And I was like, this is not right. We need to move. And later we moved back to Dallas and when we moved to Dallas, my wife's, we didn't, it was kind of spur of the moment. We'd left New Mexico, and then I said, well, let's move to Dallas. And my wife said at the time, I'm not moving to Dallas. I remember how hot Austin was, and I do not want that heat. And I said, perhaps this explains the divorce. But I said, don't worry, honey, everything will be fine. Do you know what? the temperature was when we moved to Dallas, Rod, there was 90 days, nine zero, three months of temperatures over 100 degrees every day for 90 days. But don't worry, honey, everything will be fine. Bad move on my part. Don't bet on weather in Texas. That's a lesson, Rod. Have you learned your lesson now? I've learned my lesson late. <laughs> Okay, I'm glad. But great to talk to John Karaku and great report. And this is just an ineffectual administration. Now, coming up at the bottom of the hour, we have the great Caleb Mopin on the backstory. And we'll be talking about contemporary politics and history. Oops, I shouldn't have said the name of the show, Rod. I was in the middle of a sentence and I screwed up. You know, I normally say at the end, my fault. Thanks, Command Central. My fault. I should have not said the name of the show. Okay. God bless you. Let me say it again. Rod, why don't you take it? Do the announcer part. Say the name of the show, Rod. You're listening to the best show on the radio. The Backstory. But uh, I'm looking forward to Caleb's you know, you know, had you heard of the Paris Commune before, Rod? Did you know anything about it? Uh, Lee, actually, I think I did hear about it in high school from one of my teachers, but just 
just that the just hearing the Paris Commune brought back the memory. I don't remember anything else after that. Yeah, we had Daniel Czar talk about it, and then yesterday the great Ted Rawl talked about it, and it's very interesting because really the Paris Commune was very big in Russia. Like I said, Karl Marx wrote an essay about it on the Paris Commune. And the people in 1917, during the communist revolution there, the Paris Commune was on their mind, what had happened about it. Now, I was talking to, as I said to Jean, I think something is afoot. I, and, and when I ask some people about it, they're reticent to say there's something going on. But the way I see these revolutions happening, and I think something could start in the U.S. Now, I could be spazzy. I clearly am. Maybe, Rod, my prediction's off. But do you think something could happen like it's a powder keg. Do you sense that the world and the U.S. too is a powder keg waiting for a spark? Or am I being too spazzy, negative, whatever? What do you think about the possibility of, of significant uprisings in the U.S., Rod? Uh, no, I, I agree with you, Lee. Uh, to, to a point, I agree with you. Um, whether those uprisings would be, um, I guess it would be my question to you, whether, what kind of uprising, well, what, where do you see these uprisings coming from in a constructive way or in a deconstructive way of uh, bringing down our society even more or, try, or trying to help? Because uh, I, I, I kind of see the organization of uh, nefarious actors um, gathering, trying, you know, and they, obviously they see this administration's weakness. So how would we, how would they, uh, you know, even be able to handle a situation like that? Well, I view it as the people have been pushed a long way. And therefore, I don't know what specific form it will take. Does that make sense? I have no idea what specifically is going to happen or what will set it off or what the reaction will be. But I think there's enough gunpowder out there that a powder keg could happen any number of ways. I'm seeing people sick, they've had enough. And in some ways, you know, the trucker convoy, that almost got to the point in Canada, it almost got to the point, there were the people, and Canadians are polite, but there was enough people, and I'll give you an example. I'm making it up, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I'm, exa- I'm I'm saying what could set it off. For instance, if the police trying to put down the trucker's convoy had opened fire with guns on protesters up there, I think they would have been met with people with guns. There would have been some, there would have been open gunfire. If the police, do you know what I'm saying? If the police had had said, okay, we, we need to put this down, and they had opened fire on the people, I think that would have been the spark that 
lit off uh, a big action. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, I, I, agree. I, I agree with that, Lee. And I'm just saying, you know, like John was saying about the journalist who was killed, Shireen, in uh, Palestine, it, it may not have been an order. The guy was may not have been ordered to kill Shireen. He may have just done it. So, so it doesn't need the cops being ordered by someone. But like in, in the trucker convoy, it wouldn't have been an order coming from Trudeau. But that would have been the thing that set it off. And people talk about in nuclear war, the, the danger is not necessarily from someone saying, press a button. It's from someone getting nervous and pressing a button or someone accidentally pressing a button. There's a lot of accidents. And the tension worldwide that I'm seeing I can think of any number of things that could happen in the U.S. And I really do think also, by the way, the, the problem with people looking at past behavior and saying, well, people put up with so much so far. Ernest Hemingway, the writer Ernest Hemingway, has a quote. I believe it's in his, I forget what story saying. I think Kilimanjaro. But. Here's a quote about a man who went bankrupt, and he describes how he went bankrupt. And he says, first slowly, then all at once. Have you ever heard that phrase, Roz? Yeah, yeah. And that seems to me like how these things go badly. First slowly, and you go, well, everything, there's never been a big reaction before. But then something happens. And that's what I think is interesting about the Paris Commune and the Russian Revolution. The things that set these things off, you know, what set off the Paris Commune was the Franco-Prussian War. The Parisian authorities got beat badly by the Prussians. And suddenly the people in Paris saw an opening, or the thing that Ted Rawl told us about Bastille Day. What set off the French Revolution is, he, he didn't say this, but he implied it. Didn't he imply there was a bunch of drunk Frenchmen that set right, off yeah. the, right? Yeah. He, talk, he talked about uh, there wasn't much uh, filtration of water, so people would drink all day, and it's hot, which would lead to the, you know, obviously get more drunk. Right. And you never could have predicted that going in. You, you, you never could have said, well, clearly someone's going to get drunk and Marquis de Sade's going to yell out the window and that's going to trigger it. You couldn't say that. But in retrospect, that's what happened, right? So I can't predict yeah. what's going to happen. Right, and Lee, uh, just to just to counter that a little bit, uh, did you see that the uh, the Democrats are going to put up a bill to decriminalize marijuana next week, which would makes which would kind of make sense to what you're saying. They want to make us, uh, you know, kind of uh, dumb and happy, just high, so we wouldn't, well, we we won't uh, rise up. Yes, no, no, right, because, but but 
other drugs are still legal. And that's why what's happening in Vancouver, BC, in British Columbia, where they basically legalize everything. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And I just don't know where it's going to come from. But that's why I'm looking at history, because looking at history, you're struck by how many events were seemingly minor, but led to big things, led to revolutions. And eventually in the Paris Commune, the government, after a few months, put that down. I think 100,000 troops and thousands of people. That was a very bloody put down. So if there's a, a bit of an uprising, I can't tell you where it's going to go. I can't say that the truckers would have struck back and then would have been left alone. I'll tell you one other thing, then I'll get Sharif on the phones. If the truckers, remember they started to take their money? The banks started to help hold on to deposits by the truckers up in Canada? Yeah, they, yeah Trudeau ordered their accounts frozen, yeah. And when you mess with people's money, you're messing very directly with people's livelihood, right? So if the truckers had felt justified in going to the bank and taking their money the way people take the money from banks when they rob them, except this wouldn't have been a robbery. This would have been people demanding their own money. You follow me? If truckers, here's what happens. Once you get people desperate, when people are desperate, they consider things they normally wouldn't consider. And that's the lesson of history. And we'll talk with Caleb Mopin about some of that stuff coming up in just 15 minutes. But first, 202-521-1320. Thanks for holding Tarif. Thanks for being patient. What's on your mind? I have two comments. First, I'd like to say free journal science. My first comment is this. I was watching this little thing today dealing with Ukraine. And from what I understand, they're supposed to have a referendum to take in the LPR, you know, because you got the DPR and you got the LPR, the Lucrans region, to either, well, they can be their own independent state attached to Russia or they can be caught, they can join Russia. Once they join Russia, if further access is taken against them from Ukraine, if Ukraine strikes them, then it'll be like striking Russia, then Russia might declare war on Ukraine. Second comment. <clears throat> well, let me just say this. Putin more or less warned them in that meeting we talked about with Mark Sabota a couple of days ago. Putin warned them. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but you ain't seen nothing yet. He said the Russians have not, they, they've barely started. And if Ukraine thinks what you're seeing is the best Russia can deliver militarily, Putin told you. At that meeting, you ain't seen nothing yet, so go for it. And he also said that. That was a paraphrase, but he basically said, you want, they want to engage the military? So be it. So go ahead, Tarif. Yeah, okay. My second comment is this. <clears throat> I was looking at what um, Biden did two or three days ago when he basically gave um, Israel a green light to, to attack Iran for the nuclear program, which, which some people don't realize, but the United States politics, I mean, in a geopolitical sense, if, you attack, if Israel attacked Iran, 
start destroying the capability to produce petroleum oil and things of that nature with the Chinese put all that investment in, then that's going to put force um, China to probably declare what side they own and also to start supplying Iran with military and financial aid and other type of technologies to fight back against Israel. But also, by Israel doing that, that might also throw, you know, pull in Saudi Arabia on the side of Israel because Saudi Arabia would probably be forced to do it. China would have no problem from a military point of view because their back would be against the world or the wall because they need as much as gas and, and petroleum as possible. While China might actually have to have a preemptive strike on Taiwan at the same time to try to uh, clear to clear out the flank. If things get worse, then you might see China and Japan get into it. But China might even have to destroy the Japanese naval fleet and take part of the um, Pacific region away from the uh, the, um, the Western powers, just to secure the flank and also secure the shipping flames, shipping lanes. Yes, they're getting petroleum and natural gas from Russia, but it's still not enough because they still need that gas from Iran. If, 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 if Israel strikes, Iran is almost like they're going against China interests. You know what I'm saying? So China got 1.4 billion people, and it's steadily growing. So you would see China probably go to war in that region with with United States and maybe some other countries. No. That's my own. It's hard to tell what's going on in Saudi Arabia because all of those countries have fundamentally no respect for President Biden. And they've shown that by not taking his calls at some points. But also, Sharif, I think I think that Biden bringing up Khashoggi and bringing it up in the press conference afterwards is his way of saying the Saudis aren't going to increase oil production the way he wanted. Because if he thought they might, do you agree that he wouldn't have bought up Khashoggi? Um, I didn't even know he brought up Khashoggi. Why would he do that? How about Julian Assange? How about um, NBA? Yeah, I, I hadn't seen the press conference. Apparently, there's a press conference about two hours ago. And John Kiriakou brought it up that he not only brought up Khashoggi, but he brought it up in the press conference and said MBS denied it, but he doesn't believe him. He thinks he's lying. So, Rod, you heard John say that. Do you think that Biden bringing up Khashoggi shows that he's written off any possibility of getting the Saudis' help in his fool's errand of in increasing oil production. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Lee. Uh, he, why would he, like Therese said, why would he bring that up? Uh, and then, you know, if, if he was getting the oil, he wouldn't bring that up to embarrass um, MBS. But since he's not getting the oil, he might as well, he feeds the press what they want. That's right. If if I were if I was in di divorce negotiations and did a press conference afterwards, and I said, "By the way, I thought my wife looked awful in a dress. She she looked horrible." That it indicates that I they didn't go well, right? Because I wouldn't bring that up if I thought if if I thought there was a possibility I might get. Negotiation, con, you know, uh, consideration down the road. You don't say something insulting, and so the insults 
to Mohammed bin Salman seemed to indicate he realizes he's not going to get anything. So what he might as well get is the people who would criticize him for not bringing up Khashoggi. He might as well throw them a bone. Does that make sense, Rod? He's throwing a bone to his critics in the United States. Yeah, and then uh, I, I guess you hadn't seen it, but Peter Alexander for NBC, I believe he's for NBC, uh, right before the uh, they were kicked out of the uh, the meeting, also questioned MBS about Khashoggi. Then he bragged about it on Twitter, you know, pretty much trying to say he, you know, he's just brave. He's his brave by asking the MBS about Khashoggi. Yes. And since Joe Biden's career is not filled with bravery, I thought that's it's my hypothesis that that explains what Biden was up to there. But, Treef, anything else? One more thing. Thank you, Felice, for giving me another um, uh, section for another comment. Okay, Europe is afraid in July 21st come around that the gas might not be turned back on with gas farm one, right? If Russia don't turn it back on or they decrease the gas flow, that's going to affect the European economy, which in turn is going to increase the imports exports the prices of the goods being sent out because it would require more money to fill, to, to ship out things, which means most, most countries on the planet won't buy from them. So the industries will start to collapse. And also the euro, big dollar, right, the euro, will actually decrease by 10%. It's amazing, it's amazing how the, the sanctions against Russia actually is affecting them, that the euro will actually decrease in price underneath the dollar, right? That's my my Great call, as usual, Trey. Thanks very much. And bringing up the Iranian issue and what apparently uh, Israel was given a green light to do is, and, and like everything the Biden administration does in foreign policy, they'll say one thing and they give mixed signals all over the place. And it's very confusing. For instance, they'll say, well, we're not going to give. They had said, we're not going to give Ukraine these long-range missiles because they could be used against Russia. But Alex Mercoris from the Duran believes absolutely, and I think he's right, that eventually the U.S. is going to give Ukraine the long-range missiles. And, you know, the U.S. is... One thing, as Brave said, Putin's not playing. And Putin, when he gives indications, you can take it to the bank. And when the Biden administration gives indications, you have no idea. And it's a very confused foreign policy and very contradictory. And that's creating an unstable situation worldwide. And that contributes to the sense that the wheels are falling off all around the world. And I think even things like the mass shootings and the assassination in Japan, these are, they give the sense that, I'll put it like this, I, I won't even use the metaphor of a roller coaster. It's like you're on a roller coaster and when it's going up the hill, someone set the roller coaster on fire and then a lightning storm starts. There's so much going on at once 
that's very oh i'll tell you another headline rod you're feeling okay right you're not planning on calling 988 are you <laughs> no no i'm not now because if you called it today you die but tomorrow you do you know what 988 is going to be no, I, I did see I did see this in the headlines, but I didn't look into it. But uh, go ahead, tell me. It's a suicide prevention hotline. So nationwide, and th there's an interesting stat, and I have no explanation for this. But do you know what state of the union? What American state has the highest per capita rate of suicide? Go ahead. Do you know this? Um, I mean, I can guess, um, I would, um, if you don't know it, I'll bet you guess wrong. Um, I'll say Vermont. Okay. That's interesting. Do you, do you think that's bad Ben and Jerry's or what, what do you think? <laughs> um, it's just an isolated place. Uh, you know, I had been recruited to play football out there. It's just a very isolated place. It could get depressing out there. So I'll just say Vermont. Take a guess. Okay, in a way you're close, but you're not close at all. But it's a small state that's even more isolated. Wyoming. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It, isn't it interesting though that Wyoming has the the highest per capita rate of suicide? So this number nine eight eight, it would be like nine one one, but for suicidal people. By the way. Suicidal people, what was wrong with 911? Apparently, that wasn't working for them. But 988 will get you to a psychologist and in your local area. But I would say I'm no psychologist, obviously, but I'm, I'm not a therapist. But I would say all you could do, what could you do as a therapist? If someone calls the suicide prevention hotline, the the diagnosis is essentially don't do it, right? Right. That's it. Don't do it. Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a tough thing, Lee. I, I was EMT for six and a half years. I dealt with suicidal patients. Uh, it's it's tough enough in person versus uh, over the phone. Yeah, and, and what can you? It's not like. If you're injured, you they, they might be able to say, take this or put a tourniquet on or have someone, you know, whatever, uh, get get in a, a tub, something, something. With suicide prevention, pretty much all you can say is, okay, don't do it. Because saying do it, that would defeat the purpose. But we're looking forward to, at the end of the week, being joined by the great Caleb Open, and we'll be doing that right after this short break on. And don't do it if you're going to before this segment, the backstory.
back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Our guest now, Caleb Mumpin, is a correspondent with RT and formerly with Al Jazeera. Hey, Caleb, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. What did you say about Al Jazeera? You were with Al Jazeera formerly. Correct? No, never was. No, I was with Press TV, uh, which is from Iran. Oh, uh, it's for, a Middle Eastern TV forgive, network. Forgive me, but yeah, forgive me. No problem. No problem. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking of. And I know that because I've been I, I'm, I don't want to sound like a fanboy, but I am, Caleb. I've been oh. really enjoying your YouTube channel. I've seen you in the chat. And I wanted to make sure it was really you and not an imposter. But now I know it's you for sure. Very good. No one ever impersonates me. Because okay. there's no advantage, but uh, I really enjoy your YouTube channel, and I would recommend anybody who wants to get smarter. There's hours of material on there, and I'll tell you what else I've learned. You you are very popular and well loved, Caleb, and I'm I'm gonna say what I mean. You're you're speaking at there's some conference that was apparently in the woods. Do you, do you know what I mean? In Kansas, sure, yeah, we just had a great uh, a great gathering in Kansas, uh, Lynn Valley, and uh, it was a great four day national gathering of members of the Center for Political Innovation, a training school, and actually in two weeks we're going to be in Chicago, August sixth. We're having an event called Down with the Imperialists, uh, and Garland Nixon is going to be there. Uh, Dan Kavalik, the great writer, is going to be there. Um, some other personalities are going to be there. It's going to be pretty awesome. So yeah, the Center for Political Innovation, we are marching ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I'll have you talk about that, but you remember the 80s sitcom Cheers, of course. And remember sure. when the character Norm would walk into the bar? Everyone in the bar would go, Norm, right? So at that mm. event, when Caleb walks into the room, everyone goes, Caleb, they were very happy to see you. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's a great see? bunch of folks, and I meet so many good people, you know, and doing this kind of stuff. You put a message out there, and and it hits home with some people. Some people are just really tired of these wars. Some people really want to see America built up, better infrastructure, better jobs, better schools, better health care, instead of better bombers and better weapons being sent to the Ukrainian Nazis. I, I watched the, the video you put up there last night, and that's where you talk about some of your history. And that's why I said, and I was wrong, Al Jazeera, but it was Press TV, where you're talking about how you were working with Press TV and how that affected your life. But you've got a long history of activism and journalism. And Caleb, do you get the sense, I was talking to John about this, we've been talking about it all week. Throughout history, there have been times when multiple revolutions seem to be going off around the world and uprisings. And it doesn't happen all the time, but at some points in history, that seems to be happening. Given what we've seen in Sri Lanka and even in Holland and with the truckers up in Canada, do you get the sense that we are at that age in the world right now where it's a, it's like a powder keg ready to blow? And it's hard to say what's going to set off what where. You I think we sense? have some. Oh, totally. And, uh, you know, you can compare it to 1848 when there were 200 different revolutions across Europe, 200 different revolutionary uprisings. Uh, you can compare it to 
you know, uh, I, it appears to me that what happened with the Arab Spring was we were in a situation, especially in the Middle East, with the droughts, with the financial crisis. There are a lot of hungry people that Hillary Clinton and the U.S. State Department said, well, rather than just letting it happen naturally, let's have it happen on our terms. And they used Facebook. Uh, they used Al Jazeera. They used Twitter. Uh, they And they, they set it off prematurely so they could be in control of it. Right. And they used their friends from the Muslim Brotherhood and they kind of channeled the unrest in a direction that they wanted. And I think having Barack Obama as president was key and faking out the Arab world that Obama might be a Muslim, which he was not a Muslim, but but faking him out that he might be right. You know, he's got a like he's got his middle name is Hussein and he went to a Muslim school and and the, the Israelis don't like him. And, you know, that was key. If there hadn't been Obama in the White House to kind of fake out the, the Muslim world, they wouldn't have been able to, to kind of stage manage the unrest of the Arab Spring as effectively as they did ultimately. And that we know that Jared Andrew Cohen with Google Alphabet uh, was going back and forth between the State Department and Silicon Valley and doing so without even Obama's permission. Uh, that was one of the things that was revealed. New Yorker magazine did a great expose about how Obama wanted to fire Jared Andrew Cohen for manipulating Twitter and having Twitter like meddle in Iranian politics. And Hillary Clinton protected him and basically overruled the president and said no. Um, and that, you know, all this unrest is definitely, uh, definitely a result of the conditions. But there's also a faction uh, in the Pentagon and in Silicon Valley and in and in the big oil companies and the intelligence apparatus that is saying, OK, fine, if they want unrest, if, if people are getting hungrier and angrier, let's manipulate it for our own ends, right? Let's have the unrest happen on our terms so we can use it to bring down our geopolitical rivals, so we can use it to uh, destabilize things and, and kind of put ourselves more in control. And then ultimately, it's the big super monopolies, you know, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, Chevron, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley elite, uh, those folks, uh, the pandemic has been very good to them. Uh, and uh, they really just want to clear out the competition and secure their place. And I really think Joe Biden is the new Jimmy Carter, because that's what Jimmy Carter was trying to do. And the Reagan revolution, as confused and weird as the politics was, the Reagan revolution was the domestic economy of the United States, and including some military manufacturers saying, we just don't like your degrowth agenda, Carter, we're not going to take it. Um, and I think Biden is trying to do a similar thing, shut down the domestic economy, secure a monopoly for those big imperialist super corporations. Now, Caleb, you're a smart guy. Do you know about Civil Society 2.0? Uh, is that the initiative from the State Department where they're promoting revolutions and such? Or tell me more. Yes, Th that's exactly right. And I would look into that if I were you, because I mm. I figured that out a few years ago. Now, another way of saying what you're saying, because you were involved with Occupy Wall Street. You were one of the organizers, right? I was, yes. Now, and so I, was, I, I, yeah, go ahead, Caleb. Well, no, I mean, I was there uh, at the early planning stages, uh, the, the planning meetings that happened. Actually, there's a video of me at the first General Assembly of Occupy Wall Street before they'd ever taken the park, and I'm screaming class against class, right? And I'm there, and they have actually used me in a few of their documentaries. It's like the image of the, the hardline radicals that Occupy Wall Street was trying to break from. You know, um, I, I've been kind of, you know, I'm, I'm the villain in some of these Occupy Wall Street documentaries because I was very clearly putting out, you know, kind of a classical Marxist class struggle line. Um, and I was there at the beginning of it. I was actually part of Bloombergville, which was before Occupy Wall Street, which was a protest, an occupation in lower Manhattan against Mayor Bloomberg's budget and his budget cuts, closing firehouses, laying off teachers and such. I was part of that. And that, that got pretty rowdy, but got like almost zero coverage. No one paid any attention to it. 
Uh, and then Occupy Wall Street was getting hyped from the beginning. And I remember that. And I went to the planning meetings and it it was weird because they were just adamant. We're not going to have this be about anything. You know, it's just we are the 99 percent. We're not going to demand jobs, not going to demand health care. It's just going to be, you know, Occupy Wall Street. And that was weird. Um, and but I was there from the beginning. I was arrested at Occupy Wall Street. I spent a lot of time in that park. Um, you know, I was part of, you know, the aftermath of Occupy Wall Street. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Zuccotti Park. And and yeah, I mean, it was a pivotal moment. Um, but one thing that I was always doing is saying, you know, the bombing of Libya was going on at the same time, if you'll remember. And I was saying, why are we not standing against what NATO is doing in Libya? And a lot of the occupiers agreed with me. Uh, but a lot of the leaders, the people that were clearly being paid to be there, uh, they thought that overthrowing Gaddafi and destroying the most prosperous country on the African continent and the Occupy Wall Street protests went hand in hand. They liked the quote unquote revolution that was happening in Libya that we now know was completely staged by the U.S. State Department, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a contradiction because Occupy Wall Street was full of young guys like me. I'm from Ohio. I'm from a small town. I've seen the effects of deindustrialization and driving down living standards. And, you know, I think at least it's up to five people in my graduating class now that have died from opioids. And, you know, I've seen what what this capitalist decay has done to middle America. And I'm I'm angry at Wall Street. I'm angry at the Pentagon. I'm angry at the billionaires. And that was your average Occupy Wall Street person. But there was this other layer of people that were being paid to be there that were working with some of these nonprofits and NGOs that had a different agenda, I would say. Well, they, they did. And uh, another way of saying it, because I covered Occupy Wall Street as a reporter, and I was with Bright Bread News at the time. And at the time, working for a conservative media outlet, the lazy way to do reporting is you'd go down to Occupy Wall Street and you'd find someone to say they're a communist and you'd mm-hmm. videotape that. And that's the only story you had to run on a right wing media outlet. If someone says, I'm a socialist, that's a story. And it made conservatives go, oh, look, look how bad that is. But I was curious about it and trying to figure out what was making things tick. And I saw that there were two groups of people and you're describing it. One was the Democrat controlled people, the Democrat Party, the and then was the what I'll call organic, dedicated, actual communist or socialist. And I uh-huh. can tell there are two two groups that were somewhat they they did not have the same goal. And one of them was being used to promote democratic issues, which are not the same as socialist issues. Does that make sure. sense, Caleb? Totally. And the Tea Party was the exact same way. There was the Republican Party, Fox News made for TV Tea Party. And then there was the real Tea Party of Ron Paul supporters, people who wanted to end the wars, people who wanted jobs, people who, who you know, were you know, talking about the gold standard and the Federal Reserve and such. And that the Tea Party was a very similar thing, that the Tea Party was a genuine uprising of middle Americans who were mad about the financial crisis. Um, they tended to be from Republican areas and red states, but they were genuinely mad at the power structure. And Fox News made it about, you know, we need to, you know, communism's bad. Obama's a secret Muslim. And, you know, I, you know, they made it about something else. And uh, would you say that was correct? I mean, you probably spent more time at tea parties than I did. But I, I even got that sense. I wasn't very present, but I, I got that sense. Did you get that sense from the tea party? Well, you're 100 percent accurate. The first tea party thing I covered was uh, uh, out in New Mexico. And I was surprised that the Tea Party was different than I expected it to be. At the time, I was writing for the Huffington Post. And I was surprised by a lot of them were clearly not AstroTurf. 
They were smart libertarians who were well-read. Does that make sense? People who uh-huh. might, who, who, you know, who knew who Murray Rothbard were or Lysander uh-huh. Spooner. And sure. then I was also at the first Occupy Wall Street march in Dallas, and it was at the Federal Reserve. And that crowd was a mixture of socialists and libertarians. And I was stunned by it. That uh, Occupy Wall, everyone was getting along fine because they were marching outside the Federal Reserve and they were opposed to it. Does that make sense, Caleb? Sure. It makes sense. And honestly, you know, I, I used to really hate libertarians, right? Because I just, you know, I was I was seeing so many people. I went to kind of a predominantly Republican college. I saw so many people that were just kind of Bush people. They supported all the wars. They supported the torture and all of that. And then around the time Obama got elected, all of a sudden they were, you know, waking up and saying the wars were wrong. But then it was like they were waking up different than I was. They were saying, well, we need real capitalism. We need free markets, blah, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I, I kind of hated libertarians. But I look back on it now and I realize that then in a lot of ways, like libertarians are against the power structure that I'm against. And I think the main thing that, that unites libertarians and socialists, it's, it's not a policy, but it's a fact that we believe in growth. A lot of people are libertarians because they want to start their own business. They want to make money. They want to prosper. They want to grow. They want to see the communities they live in grow more prosperous. And historically, that's what socialists want as well, right? It was socialism that made Russia and China into superpowers. Uh, it was socialism that you know made Cuba a country known all over the world for its healthcare system and its literacy programs, et cetera. And that libertarians and socialists both believe in economic growth, whereas the ruling elite, the big monopolies, they don't believe in growth. And they are pushing degrowth both onto right-wingers and libertarians in the name of austerity, right? we got to cut everything, cut our way into growth, you know, cut our way, cut government jobs, cut programs, cut spending on infrastructure, and into left-wing circles with this degrowth stuff that they're promoting now, this idea that less is better. You know, the problem with capitalism is it just grows too much. It, you know, there's just too much growth. We need to slow down, reduce the population. That has nothing to do with what Karl Marx ever wrote. You know, Karl Marx, he talks about the higher stage of communism as being a society of so much abundance that all, you know, all inequality fades away. People can just kind of take what they need and do what they feel like doing because technology has advanced so much and there's so much wealth and abundance being created. So, you know, degrowth seems to be the main thrust of what the big monopolies are pushing. Libertarians don't believe in degrowth. They want growth. Uh, socialists, genuine socialists around the world and, and even in this country have historically fought for economic growth. So it seems like that that seems to be the big battle that's going on. It's between the, 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 the ultra rich who are against growth because they want to stay on top and everybody else who says, look, I'm a human being and this is what human beings do. We grow. We expand. We invent new things. You know, beavers have been making their beaver dams the same way for thousands of years. And ants have been building their ant farms the same way for thousands of years. But human beings, in just four or 5,000 years, we've gone from, you know, from hunter-gatherers in the woods to space travel and iPhones. Human beings are tool makers. They're inventors. They're creative creatures. They expand. They grow. They want more than they already have. That's the nature of being a human. And if you're not expanding and if you're not growing, then you start dying. I mean, that's just a fact of life. Um, and it seems like the, the people that are already at the top of the pyramid have decided growth must end. We're going to stay at the top of the world, whether it's because of climate change or, or whatever. Everything's got to end. And uh, and it's very frightening. And, and I think the pessimism that's coming out of our cell phones, coming out of our computers, coming out of our TV screens, the message is there is no hope. There is no point. You know, they're pushing the drug use really hard. They're pushing pornography really hard. They're they're kind of urging people to destroy themselves. And it's very, very scary because human beings will resist this. Human beings will break out of this, right? 
human beings will continue to grow. Life does seek to preserve itself. Um, and I think libertarians realize that. I think socialists realize that. And the people who don't are, are the people ruling over us, the ultra rich. Yeah, no, you make a great point. And you, you make this point in a number of your videos. And I want people who are li liberty minded people who are part of my audience to hear what Caleb's saying. He's a socialist who is saying he's basically pro productivity. I don't know what word to use. It's not capitalism exactly, but it's pro productivity, right, Caleb? Yeah. Pro innovation, pro productivity, pro pro raising the living standards, um, pro you know expanding the population, pro getting to and, you know if we want to deal with climate change, right? This is my biggest pet peeve. They say the answer to climate change is we all have to have less. No, no, the answer to climate change is we need fusion energy. We need nuclear power. We need you know higher fuel sources, not less. Windmills are not going to solve global warming. You know, uh, you're not going to solve global warming with solar panels. We need fusion energy. We need more scientific research. We need more technology to get beyond fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, I'm for you, human advancement. Yeah, progress. And Caleb, you have a great quote that you sometimes quote from Cecil Rhodes, the founder of apartheid in South Africa, De Beers Diamond Company. And I'm sure you haven't got it memorized, but talk about, you know what quote I'm talking about. Well, Cecil sure. Rhodes... And this talks about the purpose of imperialism, the purpose of imperialism. You talk about that topic quite a bit. So, and so talk sure. about that Cecil Rhodes quote. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's interesting. It's Lenin quotes him in his book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. And Cecil Rhodes was walking through the poor district of London, and he saw a rally of these unemployed workers. And they were protesting, and they had signs. They were protesting for bread, bread, bread. And he said, based on that, he said, you know, he, he understood that in order to avoid a civil war in England, they had to become imperialists, and that the, that imperialism was a bread and butter issue. That, that instead of having the poor people in in London revolt and and overthrow the rich, uh, they had to send them around the world to be overseers and bosses, and they had to make such a super profit that they could afford to buy off the workers at home. And that imperialism was largely about preventing some kind of class struggle or workers' revolt in the homeland. And that's a really important point. And Cecil Rhodes, you know, it came right from the horse's mouth. I mean, he admitted that, and this was in 1892 that he said this. That he saw that the you know the workers of London were protesting and, and organizing unions and such, and he said, "Look, let's have an empire so we can buy them off and shut them up, so we can have peace at home and avoid some kind of class war." Yes. Now, we've been talking the last couple of days with Daniel Zar and Ted Rawl describe the Paris Commune because I didn't know anything about the Paris Commune a couple of weeks ago, and how significant. I won't have you tell the story again because we had Daniel and Ted do a good job of describing it. But how important was the Paris Commune to the people in 1917 Russia? How important well, is the Paris Commune historically? It was it was the only model of like a successful workers' revolution that had come before the Russian Revolution. And Lenin, at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, he wrote this book called The State and Revolution. There's multiple chapters about the Paris Commune in it because that was the only example. Um, and it was an uprising. You know, in, in 1871, uh, France and Prussia were having a war. Uh, and the French government surrendered and collapsed. And so the, the Prussian army was marching in. 
But the, the workers of Paris and, and other people in Paris, not just the workers unions, but others, they said, we don't want to surrender to the Prussians. We don't want to be conquered. And so maybe the capitalists have surrendered. We're not going to surrender. We're going to defend the ideals. And you have to remember, the French Revolution was, you know, it was, it was not 100 years before yet. It was still in, in fresh memory. France was associated with the rights of man and liberty, egalite, fraternity. They said, if we get conquered by the Prussians, we're going to you know, have the legacy of our revolution get tarnished. So in the name of defending the legacy of the French Revolution, uh, you had the labor unions and the socialists uh, of Paris took over the city. And for two months, they held off the Prussians. And the Prussians and the French capitalists combined to beat back this, this revolutionary government that existed in Paris for a while. It was called the Paris Commune. Um, and it was a temporary government, but they had great achievements. Uh, they, you know, they, you know, women, women participated and, and were given the vote. Uh, you know, you had labor unions setting policy. They replaced the police with like a militia among the population. The people were policing themselves with community militias. Um, and it was, it was a great step forward. One of the first things they did was they burned the guillotine. The guillotine had been associated with the French Revolution, but among the people, they hated the guillotine because it was a symbol of, of terror, of revolutionary terror and political repression and violence. So when they came to power, they had a ceremony where they, they doused the guillotine with oil and lit it on fire. And they said, we don't want to have a government that rules by terror. Um, it was a it was a kind of a great upsurge of democracy in Paris, um, and it, it lasted a very short time. But have you ever seen the fist salute, the salute people do when they, they give the fist? Because that actually comes yes. from the Paris Commune. It comes from that because when the Paris Commune was defeated, they just executed people in mass. They lined up all the leaders of the Paris Commune, thousands of people, and they just shot them. Right. And so they were executing them. And so some of the guys that were being executed, they had the idea they knew about rigorous mortima. I believe that's like when you die, your body like, you know, it starts to like straighten out kind of. And so they were doing they held up their fists as they were being shot. And then when their bodies were dumped in graves, the executioners looked on in horror as fists came up out of the ground. You know, out of the ground in these shallow graves, you started seeing fists popping up because of rigorous mortima. And that was like the symbol of the French, uh, the symbol of the Paris Commune and the symbol of communism became this fist rising up out of the ground, the symbol of revolutionary immortality. It's a very powerful image. And that's why, you know, you, we know when the, you know, we see the fist, we think like black power. We think, you know, we think, uh, you know, you know, power to the people or whatever. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Paris Commune, the fist salute. And it was it was, you know, holding your fist up like that so that when your body straightened, the fist would come up out of the ground and and be a symbol of immortality. It's kind of a moving story. Um, yeah, and it was, it, was, it was considered the first uprising. What's interesting is that Karl Marx, you know, he was in London. He didn't originally support it. Uh, you know, some of the people in Paris told him, hey, we're thinking about having an uprising or whatever. And he said, don't do it, don't do it. Uh, but then when it happened, he said, look, I was wrong. He said, these people did something really amazing. And they, they, they had an uprising. They created a workers' government. And, and he was one. He changed his position. And he, he admired the Paris Commune and supported it, which is kind of an interesting position. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the Paris Commune was a pivotal moment in the history of Europe. Um, it certainly was responded to with a lot of death. I mean, the aftermath of the Paris Commune, I mean, it was a bloodbath. I mean, it was just mass executions. Uh, in the aftermath of it, because the, the capitalists had never seen anything like it. This was the first socialist workers uprising that had really ever taken place. Now, I think a lot of the things that they wanted in the Paris Commune are just taken for granted now. For instance, th they were successful, but they were talking about suffrage and stuff like that. That is not an issue for anyone today. Would you agree that the things they wanted were prescient for the way society would go? Yeah, I mean, one of the demands, I think, was universal male suffrage. And then I think they expanded it to women after they took power. But you have to remember that just just that universal male suffrage, that was a big deal in the 1800s. 
It used to be that you had to own property in order to vote. Even in the United States, you had to own a, a piece of land. If you did not own land, you could not vote. Um, and the demand of universal male suffrage, you know, people died for that. People were protesting for that. There were uprisings. You know, in, in Britain, there was a group during the English Civil War called the Levelers. They were the Levelers, and they were demanding universal male suffrage. So whether you own property or not, you should be able to vote. Um, and that was a very controversial demand. People said, well, if you don't own any property, you're not invested in the nation. Why should you get a vote alongside the landowners and, and, and the wealthy people? And, and yeah, I mean, that was one of, the, one of the big demands of the 1870s in all of Europe, not just in, not just in France, but in Germany and, and many parts, you know, Poland, other places. You had people taking to the streets and rioting and protesting, demanding, quote unquote, universal male suffrage. Um, it's pretty wild to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Now, now Caleb. We're almost out of time. It's a great appearance, a great way to end this week on the show. So thanks very much for coming on. Sure. We'll have, get, have to have you on again soon because you're not going to have enough time to talk about this. But I think you'll, you'll be able to glance on the surface of it. Explain to people who George Sorrell is, because I think in many ways we are in the age of George Sorrell. And people sure. don't know who he is. And do you think I'm broadly right? That I think you are. Of- yeah, yeah ahead, George Sorrell was a French socialist. And, you know, you had this problem in Europe that, you know, Marxism was everywhere. Socialist groups were everywhere in like the 1890s, ni- 1900. But you weren't having a socialist revolution. And so George Sorrell was this French intellectual. And he said that the problem was a spiritual problem, that Marxism was too too materialistic and it was too optimistic. It, it, it was, you know, it believed that, you know, the people would just naturally rise up or just going to naturally march to better times. And he said that, that, that Marxism needed to appeal to more conservative things, needed to appeal to the love of the nation, love of the country, love of the king. He joined a monarchist party and he had this spiritual critique uh, of the Marxist movement. And he also said that he was not in favor of optimism. He said that actually civilization was heading toward a great collapse and this great collapse that was coming could set things right. And that instead of wanting things to get better, socialists should be saying, let's try to make things worse. Let's try to make things as bad as they possibly can. Bring on the collapse so that then afterwards we can build something completely new. And he was the pessimist and he was the dark socialist. And what's interesting is that uh, Benito Mussolini, uh, who eventually became the founder of fascism, he actually said he owed everything in his life to his great teacher, George Sorrell. Um, and that Sorrell's break with materialism, his break with optimism, and his move toward this kind of pessimistic, dark, collapsed socialism, people see that as the basis not only of fascism, but also of a lot of the Antifa stuff, a lot of the anarchism, the pessimism, you know, the, the stuff that you're seeing from Extinction Rebellion and some of these groups that are really pushing the climate change. This dark view that we just need everything to fall apart, we need to tear it all down, burn it all down, that is in many, many ways the, the critique of George Sorrell, I would say. And then the idea was building what he called motivating myths, correct? Is you you could gain power over the masses by these motivating myths. Yeah. Build a group of isolated fanatics, right? That that the problem the Marxists were making is they were building labor unions and community groups and all that. And he said, no, don't do that. Find an isolated group of fanatics, people who will die for you, people that are bloodthirsty, that will engage in violence and and terrify and impress everyone with their violence. 
And by doing that, you know, you will you will gain spiritual power over the masses. They'll be afraid of you. He, he talked about, you know, later they talked about propaganda of the deed, right? The idea of we can build this, we can build this isolated group of fanatics that will awe everyone, and that will kind of be the 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 groundwork and lay the basis for for our ideas kind of being taken over. Um, and that was also, I mean, we know about the brown shirts and and you know the black shirts in Italy and fascism. Fascism in a lot of ways was that. It was you know this this isolated group of, of violent fanatics that kind of impressed people and that people would, would look up to the and violent so, fanatics. Yeah. So real brief, brief, briefly, Caleb, I, I think right now we're in an age of fascism. I think the stuff that you see from the WF, for instance, is fascism in action. Do you broadly agree? I do. Yeah, I think that fascism is largely about degrowth. It's about driving down living standards. It's trying to stabilize capitalism by driving living standards down and, and having a tightly controlled you know society to drive living standard da- standards and down. And that's of, what we're seeing. We're out, of yeah. time. we're out of time, unfortunately. But the way to find you is your name on YouTube. And I would really yes. recommend it. And I'd love to have you back on again soon and talk sure. about some of these issues more because you're a font of oh. knowledge. And thanks so All much right. for coming on the show to end us for the week. Thanks so much right. to Caleb Alvin. And John Kiriakou for appearing last hour, and Tarif for calling in. We have more coming up next week. Making you smarter every day on the Bachelor.